0: As uh, all of creation gets shifted here uh, onto the stage, let's pray. And then when you open your eyes, it will appear behind me. Let's pray. So God, we do thank you that, uh, that you are the creator of all, and we praise and worship you for that. And we recognize that we need to hear from you tonight. Uh, you understand best because you made it all, how it all sh- should fit together. And so our prayers, as we dive into the, dive deeply into the stories of your scriptures, that you would speak to us, and that the same Holy Spirit that inspired uh, the telling, the gathering, the collection of, of the stories of scripture, that that same Holy Spirit would be at work amongst us as well, giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, and the will and the courage to respond, as you call us. And so be with us now as we open up your words of scripture, for in them we find life, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, how many folks uh, recognize roughly what this thing is behind me? Is there a... Anyone know what a flannel graph is? Are you having body memories right now? Sort of warm Kool-Aid, stale animal crackers, some dank, dark church basement room? A little bit too much like Blair Witch Project, but with flannel, right? Right. Uh, how many have no idea what a flannel graph is, that you've managed to make it this many years in life and don't know? Well, it is a uniquely evangelical art form from the mid-last century. It was a way of being multi... I mean, it's actually quite creative. A way of being multimedia long before you had your Xboxes and your Wiis or even your Pong, you know, some of you older folks. Uh... (laughs) Hey, don't pull anything back there. So... But we are just doing this series called Flannel Graph for the next four weeks just because it's fun, though don't get me wrong, we're not doing it because it's not fun either. But we recognize that for many of us, and particularly for a church that's relatively young, you know, we're going into our fifth year or so, and we have folks from all different backgrounds, those who've grown up in the church, those who are returning after being away for a long time, and many who are sort of sketchy, even like really I was growing up. I didn't wasn't part of a Christian family or even one that faked it and went to church. I, I, I did have a few tastes of flannel graft, though, those guilty moments that my mother would have occasionally where she would, she would drop me off at like a vacation Bible school or something, but she'd never stay herself, please. Uh, so we recognize that we don't always have a good sense of how the people and places and particularly underlying purpose of the stories of Scripture, how those pieces fit together. And so we're going to do this epic series, eight feet tonight until we have 32 feet of the Old Testament story told in flannel. And our hope is that that will help us put the pieces together and better understand God's story not merely for the sake of information, but so we can have a better sense of how we fit into that story for a better opportunity for transformation. And so it's a call to worship some of the kids helped Kathy Belletti, who, uh, who is as much preaching tonight as I am, because she has put together the pieces and, and did so much of this work. And in Genesis chapter 1, you have one of the creation accounts. And I say that purposely, one of them. It's a very linear, organized, you know, one day falls the next. It's structured with that seven-day pattern. The earth, the sky, the sun, the moon, humanity, the fish of the sea, the trees, it's all there. And then in Genesis chapter 2, you have a second creation account, which is also interesting. And what I just want to suggest, because we're not going to debate this tonight, is that those who put that together, again, my take is under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, knew full well that those two creation accounts were slightly different. In Genesis 2, you have a different order of the way events unfold. And you can maybe try to force them to be the same, but, but they're not. And better yet, you don't have to force them because maybe what it's telling us is the point of the stories, of them being true stories, has more to do with the theological content than, than being a, bio- biology, a, biology, a biology text or, or a news account. Uh, they, are, they are truth stories. And they ground us in this idea of creation, which really matters. If we don't grasp... That initial idea of how God created things, and later on when the Apostle Paul says, you know, Christ wants to make you a new creation. You know, what does that mean? The incarnation of God taking on the full humanity in Christ, taking on the human creation. What does that mean? Does that even make sense? Well, this is the foundational piece of that. And so a few more details from Genesis chapter 2 that might be helpful. You have... Uh, Picking it up in, uh, in verse 7, if you want to just sort of listen along, that the way humanity is created in the second account is not all at once, but one, then the other. And so imagine just, uh, you know, we're have the prom picture here of Adam and Eve, but it, <laughs> he's even copping a feel like well, like most prom pictures there. <laughs> yeah. had some folks show up to my prom dressed just like that. So, so. Late 80s, crazy times. But just imagine only one of them is here, just the man. And it says that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth. So uh, let's see what we got here. We are looking for God in all the wrong places. There we go. And so, so God formed the man from the dust. Breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, breath, spirit, wind, all the same word. Makes him a living being. And that says the Lord took the man, again, he's, he's going stag to the promise so far, Place him in the garden of Eden to kill till it and keep it, not kill it, which that's Genesis 3. And the Lord commanded the man, you may eat freely of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat it, you shall die. And so is it a literal tree with fruit that you shouldn't touch? Possibly. But at the very least, it's a picture of, of God asking for simple trust and obedience and saying there's nothing else you need to do except trust me on this one. And that's all he requires of him. And so uh, then comes to the point where uh, the guy there alone, kind of stag at the, uh, at the Night to Remember uh, Garden of Eden prom here, uh, <laughs> It says the Lord God, said verse eighteen, "It is not good for the, that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner." And so, of course, God makes animals. No, no, he makes animals. He, you know, horses and dogs and cats and you know, all living together there. It, it, that was Genesis one. You're, you're theologically very astute that there's slightly different accounts, which maybe tell us how we should maybe read the stories differently. Kara. So no, he makes animals, which is great for a while. He's naming the animals, stuff, you know. He's teaching the cats right in the back of the dog, right in the back of the horse, you know. But it gets old after a while. And so then God says, uh, end of verse 20, but for the man there was not found a helper as his partner. And so as this story of the creation account narrative in Genesis 2 unfolds, he causes a deep sleep to fall on the man. And instead of creating something out of dust again, or something lower, or something better, the picture is one of creating something side by side, a full equal partner. I love that imagery of taking from one side and creating another that's a fitting helper. And that's exactly what happened, or that's how the story teaches the truth of what happened. It says, for God made woman from Adam's side an equal partner. And then the man said, this at last, it's the prom picture finally, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So it's a wonderful picture. And so what's the, the meaning? What's the theology if we can say such a deep word with flannel as our backdrop. But seriously, what is the theology of Genesis 1 and 2? Because that may shape everything else we read in the story of Scripture following this. Well, the first thing we see is that God is creator of all, which may not sound all that odd, but God is creator of all. We also see that creation is good. Which, again, maybe doesn't strike you as terribly different. In large part because we've been shaped in a Western culture that has this Christian heritage. But when these stories were first brought together, these these Genesis creation accounts, they were no doubt oral traditions. That's why there might be two different takes on creation that were passed amongst God's people. When they were put together and gathered as written documents... It was probably in the time of, of exile, when God's people were displaced, and needed to be reminded of the stories, because the creation accounts that were around them did not say the same thing. They competed and oppressed and had other things to say. They said things such as, creation is not good, creation's evil. Creation is, is a mistake. It is not good. In fact, it came about through, through just accident or evil means, you're at the... The hands of fates. One of the creation accounts, in fact, you know the capricious gods just, just making this mess, one of them said that creation was birthed out of the raping of this female goddess. That was the creation story that was competing. That creation is evil and just to be suffered through. Where this story tells us, no, creation is good. In fact, God made it that way. It didn't show up. He didn't show up after the fact. He exists apart from it, and he made it. And then sort of a final piece that begins to give us a hint of this sense of calling is that humanity is called to be fruitful and multiply, not merely to fill things up, which now we think of in much more negative terms. That's sort of where Genesis 3 kind of twists that thing. But that idea of being fruitful, that there's a sense that I like the Eastern Church's take on this more so than sort of the Western bent in the church. Uh, They both are helpful, but, you know, the Western view was that God created this stuff in a state of perfection, like they were full-blown adults, everything was there. But the Eastern view is much more that all the necessary pieces were in place. Instead of being perfect in some, you know, Platonic ideal sense, they were innocent. And in fact, there's a sense of that in both creations account, that, that the pieces are there and stuff springs forth from it. That, in fact, the man and the woman have a task to fill this, to, to till the ground, to make it better than it was when they showed up. But it says something very profound about how God entrusts things to us. God could have made it all done and ready, instead gave us a role. And at this point, everything's going well. But is that our experience here and now of of a good creation and everyone getting along and in perfect harmony and community? No. So somewhere between Genesis 1 and 2 and right now, some other things happened, right? That's where the story in Genesis 3 comes in, the temptation and fall of humanity. And so in this part of the story, It says the serpent, and it's a crazy serpent. It's got, you know, arms and legs and, uh, yeah, very Renaissance looking. And again, I'm guessing it's much more of a truth story, but not a truth story that tells the exact opposite of the metaphor, but really gives a sense of the dynamic in place, But in the story, in Genesis 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, So should we imagine she's just here by herself? She's wandered off? That's usually how we picture it, right? But wait for it. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. And already there's a problem. That's really not what God said. Oh, he said don't eat of it, and if you do, death will follow. But here she's added this little bit about not touching it, which seems innocent enough, except it's not really what God said. And so, is it her fault? Well, Maybe. But at least in the Genesis 2 account, as humanity comes on the scene, man then woman, who is given that commandment first? The man. So maybe he's just a bad preacher. He hasn't shared the truth very well. Or maybe he thinks he's being a good preacher, like some of us occasionally do, and said, God said this, but also, let let me just help you out a little bit. Not only should you not do this, why don't we put a fence around that, and and maybe you should be way over here, far apart from that, uh, so you can kind of be ignorant of it and not know how to deal with it when you actually face it. I'm just saying that could have been what happened, too. So the woman, who doesn't have yet the name Eve, she's just woman in the story, begins this debate, which maybe is ill-advised, but she does it nonetheless. And so the serpent continues and says to the woman, "'You will not die.'" For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman, because again, it's all her fault, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it meant an appetite. It was the delight to the eyes, very attractive, and that the tree was to be desired, desired to make one wise. Be more godlike. She took of its fruit and ate and ruined it for the rest of us. Right, guys? If it hadn't been for her, we'd still be naked camping. <laughs> and let me just say this to the married ladies out there guys love naked camping. <laughs> but that's. Not quite the story. The naked camping, that's that's absolutely in Scripture. But I will stand by that word. She took it and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her the whole time. And he ate as well. So who's to blame? I think there's plenty to go around And if I were to flip it a little bit from what traditionally this has been used to, you know, sadly denigrate women and and make them a a threat to the spiritual vitality of, of men. I think Adam committed that grievous sin that too many men do. They just stand idly by and let it happen. So they're both culpable. They're both to blame. Not one more than the other. And it says, and then their eyes were open. And they knew that they were naked. And here's, a, here's going home from the prom. Right there. And a sense of shame and guilt filled the picture. And that broken relationship, that disobedience to God, just filled them with that. So they had to understandably cover it up. And from the work of their own hands, it says, they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So here, let's make this respectable now for the sake of the children. (laughs) It's way too late for that, isn't it? So, They sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. And so, of course, they have disobeyed God. And what does God do? What would he do? The creator of everything, made things perfect, he, of course, will crush them like grapes. Because it's what they deserve. Now, that's Monty Python theology, which, which most days is often better than evangelical theology, but it's not always accurate. So he goes looking for him. He doesn't have to look hard because he's God, but he calls out to them. And he is pointing a finger because they have done a few things wrong. He'd like to to talk to them just a little bit. (laughs) And he says to them, what's happened? What's going on? Why are you hiding from me? And he gives them the opportunity to respond and answer. And here it begins, the blaming, the passing the buck. Verse 12 of chapter 3. This guy, the man, said, The woman whom you gave to me, (laughs) she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate. And to verse 13, and the woman said, The serpent who I didn't make, I'm just saying, (laughs) he tricked me. You know, don't ask me, I'm a girl, right? Learned helplessness. It's part of the fall. (laughs) Ladies, daughters, my daughter. Um, (laughs) He tricked me and I ate. It's your fault, God. She did it. The devil made me do it. I often wonder. We don't know. But would the story have been different if they had said, God, we sinned? Would there have been anything different? No idea. Because none of us do that when we're confronted with our sin and failure. We say, it's her fault. It's his fault. The devil made me do it. God, I didn't ask for this. This is on you. And so in the midst of all this horrible setback for how the creation story was meant to unfold, God makes this prophetic promise as he he curses this serpent to no longer have arms and legs, but to crawl on the ground and eat dust. Uh, That's how the picture plays out. Exactly. He says, I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, all the evil that will follow from you, and hers. I believe the language there is the seed of a woman, which is odd. We often think of the seed coming from the man. It doesn't make a lot of sense till you get to the New Testament. Way back here, it's the foundational story between your offspring and hers, and he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. It's often called the proto-evangelium. This prototype of the good news, a hint at how this whole messed up creation that we now have will be set right. And so, of course, the curses enter the picture there. You know, apparently with having more wisdom, you know, larger brain capacity. I'm making this up a little bit, but you know, that's going to be a harder passage to the birth canal, ladies. Uh, so, pain in childbirth. Working the field. Producing a living. going to be unbelievably hard. Work is not part of the fall. Work exists before the fall. It's God-given and honorable, hard work that doesn't produce a whole lot, yet that's after the fall. And they will now return to dust, for out of dust they were taken. And then something really interesting happens. It says God provided a, a covering, Took him a while. (laughs) Took him a a good long time. And yeah, he sacrificed an animal. (laughs) Man. Am I ever having prom flashbacks now? Um, And it says in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and his wife and clothed them. So they're driven from the garden so that they would not live forever in a state of of sinfulness and, and separation from God because to live forever, yet in a broken relationship with God, makes even Eden a living hell. And so it's tough love, but it's lo- lo- love nonetheless to set those things in motion and drive them out. And that's where the, uh, you know, the flaming sword imagery comes in to, uh, to keep them from ever entering back in. and <laughs> uh, Yeah. So what's the theology here of Genesis 3? Ah, here we go. That was last season's. Here's that. Because something has profoundly gone wrong. Does that undo everything else? No, but it sure adds another layer. And in Genesis 3, and of course there's far more theological depth than just a few little ideas I'm pulling out, but we're trying to get the big picture here. We learn that humanity is fallen, which is something we don't like to hear, particularly in a postmodern culture. But again, if we understand that we are created in God's image and in creation it was good, then that sense of that humanity is noble and amazing, that comes from the right place. But it's still fallen and broken. And to deny that is just to continue the blaming, you know. So that's an important piece of theology, that humanity is fallen, that there's something broken that that image of god has been shattered in a way that no longer clearly and accurately reflects god but then the other really profound piece that that we have to kind of pull out and understand is that sacrifice is required to cover sin that we can't just do that ourselves And when sin enters the picture, it becomes a bloody mess and sacrifice is required. And so now that sin has entered the picture, the uh, the story continues on and, uh, you know, Genesis 6 through 11, go a little quickly here, Um, but you certainly have all of humanity continuing to get worse and worse and worse until God wishes he'd never made them. And then you have the flood narrative there, which as the story is told there in the original language, probably means more so a catastrophic yet still localized flood. Supernaturally, a worldwide flood, I don't have an issue with that on a supernatural sense. I don't think the scriptures require that reading. It helps make sense of how some things show up later on uh, that weren't on the ark, you know, some other peoples and things. Sadly, the unicorns did not make it before the... Yeah, that stinks, huh? (laughs) We'd be riding unicorns today, man, if they'd shown up on time. It's so, a warning for some of you that always show up at 10 after. Um, it's your fault we don't have unicorns. Um, and then the Tower of Babel, where, where they try to uh, become like God and, uh, and, and build and build and build as a picture. And they're all putting together all the human effort in one place to become God-like. And God, of course... Uh, um, he does frustrate those efforts, so uh, you know, we will. It's a disturbing one anyways. <laughs> Even for the 5 p.m., it's, it's a little. <laughs> it's a little disturbing, is all I'm saying. But after that, we then get to Genesis chapter 12, which is the hinge point in all of the book of Genesis. If you're reading the book of Genesis for the first time, which for most folks who sit down and say, I'm going to read the whole Bible, at least they start there. You know, around about Leviticus, they <laughs> doesn't go so well at that point. But, uh, but before chapter 12, even someone who you know, doesn't know all the historical content or is not schooled in theology, you don't need any of that to sense that there's a different type of storytelling going on. That God made sky and earth and man and woman and seas. And it's all these very mythic, big ideas. Even the flood and the Tower of Babel, which become a little more tangible, are still kind of larger than life. But in Genesis 12, it shifts. And God becomes far more particular. In fact, theologically, it's it's often called the scandal of particularity, this idea that God would pick individuals to work through. Because doesn't he love us all equally? Well, sure, I think that's true. But he also chooses to work through us individually. And this is where Abram, who will later be named Abraham, enters the story. So understanding creation, foundational to knowing how the rest of the scriptures work together. But this idea of calling is almost equally as important. So if we don't understand that, then we may not hear a calling in our life either. So in Genesis 12, Abram's out there, you know, you know tending sheep, uh, and uh, nothing to recommend him. He is, there we go, just doing his thing. When God speaks to him, and uh, we'll bring God back in the picture here. And uh, it says, that guy, that's the one I want. And it says in Genesis 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So Abram sets out to lands unknown. His wife Sarai, who later will be renamed Sarah, Goes with him. He uh, takes all his household. He, his brother apparently talks him into taking his, his nephew along a lot. Big mistake. But he does it anyways. And this whole family sets out to uh, where God is telling them to go. That way. But there, Abram... <laughs> Abram is an old dude. And his wife is as well. And they don't have children. And yet somehow... God is going to work through them a promise. It's not a flannel graph unless stuff falls off, right? And so they eventually arrive in the land of Canaan, or at least see it, and God gives some more detail. This will be the land I will give you. And then a famine strikes the land. And it's not entirely clear that God wants them to do this, but they decide to kind of wait it out in Egypt. It's like snowbirds, you know, leaving Rochester in the winter. They're just going to wait it out down in Egypt. And much like Florida, things go badly uh, when you go to Egypt. uh, And so you begin to get a sense that Abram and Sarai like to take matters into their own hands. And they hang out in Egypt. He lies about her being his sister. And even though she's an elderly lady, apparently, she is a hot elderly lady. Because <laughs> Pharaoh takes him into her harem. Not sure if that was consummated. We like to think it's not. But it may have been. God fulfills his promise to curse those who curse them. Pharaoh's household is just fallen apart. Finds out Abram lied to him and says, Yo, take your wife back. Get out. Gives him all kinds of gifts and stuff and says, go away. They take off again. Again, God picked Abram because he's a great guy. If You don't learn anything from Scripture that God picks people because they're really, really special. <laughs> right? No. And that's theologically important. That not being true. And so they head out. And not sure what's happening. Give them credit. They keep trying. But no babies are happening. And so in Genesis 15... God makes a covenant with Abram. And it says, after these things, after they've had a bunch of experiences, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says to Abram, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Put him off here by himself a little more. I am your shield, and your reward shall be great. But Abram said, Lord God, What will you give me, for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, you have given me no offspring, and so this Eliezer is the the eldest male slave. The slave born in my house will be my heir. Sort of like the president dies, the vice president, the speaker of the house. So you get down to the guy who's head of the Department of Agriculture. (laughs) And that's who's going to inherit everything. But the word of the Lord came to him and said, No, this man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and count the stars. It's full of stars. Count the stars if you were able to count them. And then God said to him, so shall your descendants be. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then God says again, I brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram appreciates the pretty picture. He appreciates the vision. He wants something more, some more assurance. And he takes a risk and says, Oh Lord God, how am I to know I shall possess it? And then God says to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. We are starting a 4-H club. (laughs) What is going on? We would have no idea, you know, without knowing the historical background here. But Abram, in fact, is maybe wishing he hadn't asked God for some more assurance. Uh, You know, maybe he's kind of hanging his head, whoops, that was a mistake he's saying. Because he knows full well what this is. You see, in that culture, when... A commitment was required, particularly between a much more powerful party, in this case God, and a lesser party. So when a a conquering king or a ruler would require other smaller rulers to be vassals of the state, there was a ceremony that they would have to go through. And Abram knows what this is. And so in fact, without God even asking him, he does what he knows is required. And I'm guessing a little nervous now that he asked for some more reassurance because it says he brought these to God and he cut them in two. (laughs) He he may be old, but he is good with a knife. And, And he laid one half against the other. Birds too small to cut in half why there's two, just rings their neck and tosses one that way and one the other way. So He cuts them in half. But then God doesn't ask him to do anything because he's imagining, surely God's going to require me to go through this, right? You know, on the playground, you've done the cross my heart, hope to die, pinky-packed. Yeah, this is a little ser- more serious than that because the picture is, if I disobey the covenant I make with you, a more powerful person... You have every right to chase me with a sword and make me like this. And Abram, sure, God's going to require him to do this. But nothing's happening. And it's taking so much time that the vultures and all these are are coming down and trying to eat the sacrifice. Because there's always a sacrifice required, right? He's beating those off, getting them away, driving them away. And the day gets longer and longer until, in verse 12, the sun's going down. And it says a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. And God gives him a vision how things will go for his offspring, that they're going to suffer, be enslaved, but he will eventually deliver them. But good news for you, Abram, you will die peacefully in your old age. But what he is saying is, after you're gone, do not worry, that even when your offspring go through incredible hardship and oppression, I will still be with them, I will still deliver them. And then it says, verse 17, when the sun had gone down, and perhaps Abram is still in this, this vision state, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. What's that, all? says in verse 18, and on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I give this land. Theology of Genesis 15, one, righteousness is by faith alone. It's not through any actions or getting it perfectly, otherwise this story would have ended a lot sooner. It's not through making a promise that you cannot keep. God asks us, just perfectly obey. Yeah. Genesis. We don't do that. But it does say that when God made those promises that Abram believed, and that was counted as righteousness, but then here's the deepest part, I think, of all the theological nuances that happen to be here. Genesis 15 lets us know that God is a covenant-making God. That he's not a God who says, you better do it right or I'm done with you. He's one who says, I will never break my promise, even though you will time and again. He's not a capricious God like the gods of the land that they're going to where there's no making covenants with them. There's maybe appeasing them for brief seasons, but who knows if another famine will hit or, or some plague or something else. But God says, no. I actually care enough to be in covenant with you. And so, Abram and Sarai kind of believe God, but not fully. Because <laughs> again, they take matters in their own hands and, uh, you know, I want to give them lots of credit. They're still still trying. Uh, Even in their old age, they are uh, giving it the old college try. Um, But there's still no babies. And so Sarai is as complicit as Abram, much as our first parents had much blame to share. She brings her handmaiden, Hagar, whose young, fertile property. Says, we'll just hack around this problem, how about Get her pregnant. Surely that will count, right? And they do. And who's born? Ishmael, who God honors his promise to bless even after she finally gets pregnant with Isaac some you know, dozen years later, requires Abraham to drive out Hagar and Ishmael to die in the wilderness. God fulfills his promise and says, all of your offspring, I will bless them and make them a mighty nation. But they went and picked kind of a plan B that now God says, I made the covenant. And then you have the Arabic people. They're a mighty nation. Wasn't quite the way the plan was meant to go, though. But God works with us, because we screw everything up. (laughs) And so, this covenant then is tested. As Isaac reaches, you know, at least the age of my son, Jaron, around 11, 12, maybe somewhere in his teens. He's not a little kid, but he's somewhere in those teenage years, we think. Maybe even a young man, but certainly... He's not a little kid. And they finally are are coming into this land more fully and understanding what's going on. And in Genesis 22, the covenant is tested. This covenant God made is put to the test. It says in 22, verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And Abraham, give him credit, is a good listener. He hears the voice of God and says, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. And Abraham finally gets it. The other shoe has fallen. This is how it's going to be. That if we're going to go into this land of Canaan, and I bet the whole monotheism thing, it's not quite clear, let's say. But if my God's going to be more powerful than their gods, he must do more powerful things than they do. And the gods of this land require human sacrifice. And so surely, God's just going to do it bigger and better. And we can barely get our heads around that. But that was the worldview that was competing, which is why God's people need these stories And so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and they set out. And then about three days in, he leaves the servants behind and says to them, Isaac and I are going off by ourselves to worship. They're not going to be singing all creatures of our God and King. There will be no flannel involved. It's going to be a sacrifice. But with a faithfulness that we view as pathological, he does it, not because he's crazy, but because he's just like everybody else. And that's how things work. And so Isaac carries the wood on his back, much as any sacrificial animal might be used as a beast of burden. Abram, Abraham takes the fire and a knife. And as they're walking along, Isaac is not a dumb kid. He's pretty sharp. He said to his father Abraham, Father, Abraham, old dude, still a good listener, says, here I am, my son. And Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And most of us read that and say, what an incredible man of faith he is. I read it and say, he doesn't want to terrify his son. Because he knows what's required. And it's a lie, is my suspicion. that he does not think that's what's going to happen. But Maybe he does. None of the actions indicate that, though. And So the two of them walked on together, and when they came to the place that God had shown them, Abram built an altar there and laid the wooden in order, and he bound his son Isaac. And you wonder, did it start off? He wasn't quite sure. Did it turn into a struggle? If he wasn't going to struggle, why bind him? Deeply disturbing. He bound his son, placed him on the altar, on top of the wood. Because now that sin's in the world, there's always a sacrifice required. And this is the sacrifice that needs to be made. It says, then Abram reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But, verse 11, the angel of the Lord, which in Old Testament scriptures often has a way of morphing into God's presence, and it's just interesting how the language shifts around. It says, but an angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. And again, thank God he listened a third time. And Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy. Or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abram looked up. And there in a thicket... He saw a ram caught by its horns and learned that this God he worships is not like other gods. And yes, a sacrifice is required. But as verse 14 says, Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And so God swears that this is the kind of God he will be to his people. Because Abram has not withheld his son, his only son, it says in verse 16, I will indeed bless you. I will make your offspring a blessing. There's that theology of that we are called, which I think I may have skipped there, and that we are blessed to be a blessing. It's reinforced that we're not blessed just to receive, we're blessed to give. He says, indeed, I will bless you and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sands that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. And by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. And there ends our story thus far. Lots of nuances and depth and detail. But it's helpful to have a grand overview, even if it's done in flannel. It helps us just hit the high points. And if I had to break it down, that whole sweep of Genesis 1 through 22, why this story pieces together in such a way that it actually matters to us, I think the one big idea is that you are created and called by God. But there's always a sacrifice. Let's pray. So God, we do thank you that you speak your story to us in ways that we can understand with epic figures and, and grand ideas and everyday people that screw up and behave in ways that are painfully familiar. And we pray that you have shown us what it means to be created in the image of God, for to be a good creation that is nonetheless fallen and broken, and that you indeed are calling us back to yourself and calling us to be a blessing on your behalf. And my prayer is one of the pastors here is for those who have, who have let this story begin to sink in That they'll have a sense that they too are created in the image of God. And that in spite of all of our sinfulness and stupidity and individual brokenness, God still calls us. And it is indeed a scandal. But because of sin, sacrifice is required. Blood has to be shed. It's the rules of the game. And so my prayer is that we would let that disturbing truth sink in so that we can make the choice of who will make the sacrifice. Will we try to do it on our own? Or will we agree with Abraham that the Lord will provide? Thank you for this story that is truthful and true, and that sets the stage for us to understand the sacrifice you indeed will provide and have provided. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, for the remainder of worship, I encourage you to respond to God's spirit at work, whoever he's calling you. And perhaps elements of this story have tweaked you a little bit. I hope so. I hope the flannel got through some of your defenses. And what a great way to recognize all this sacrificial imagery and what it all leads up to, to do that at the table of Christ, where God did not spare his only son, even though he never broke the covenant, but laid him on that altar that we deserve to be on. And blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. But because no sin was on Jesus, He rose again victorious as a once and for all sacrifice. So if you're seeking to follow after God, and that's the story you want for yourself, you're encouraged to approach the table. Tear a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice that are labeled there, and take and eat for your own spiritual nourishment for this journey that God has called us to. As his creation, as those who are called out, he's provided the sacrifice I pray you'll receive it. Worship as God leads you. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.